to please to Revelation chapter 2, and we will look this morning at the church, at the letter to the church in Smyrna. Remember, we're now looking at the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, currently uh, Turkey, most of these uh, located near the west coast of Turkey. Uh, if you look at them geographically, they almost form a circle, which uh, fit the picture of the Lord Jesus, as we noticed, uh, standing in the midst of the lampstands very nicely, each lampstand rep- representing a church. And uh, we saw last week the first church on our list, the church at Ephesus, which we're familiar with from the New Testament. It's uh, talked about in the book of Acts, and later there is a letter to that church written by Paul the Apostle. And uh, we saw that um, in the uh, letter to, to the church from the Lord Jesus, his um, criticism, if you will, or his rebuke, regarded their leaving their first love, which of course meant that they didn't love him the way they used to. That's really what he was saying. Uh, it often happens to believers. They, they start off with a... a uh, deep love for the Lord Jesus, and often with the passing of time, instead of growing stronger, which it should, it grows weaker. And so it had in the case of this church. And uh, you remember the significance, I mentioned it when I started this series, of the revelation of uh, who Jesus was at the beginning of the letter. You remember in this particular letter to Ephesus, he had said, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And that became significant because he said, if you don't repent, that is, remove whatever it is in your life that's taking place of me, then I will come and take your lampstand away. Remember that? We're going to see it again, and that's often the case, where the, the aspect of himself that he reveals to the church at the beginning of the letter is connected somehow either with their works or the commendation or with the um, warning. In this case, it was associated with the warning. He threatened to take away the lampstand. And we said, uh, of course, what does it mean, take away the lampstand? Well, uh, he was saying, I will take away your testimony. What would that be like <clears throat> if Jesus takes away the lampstand, which I believe he continues to do today? Take the lampstand away from a church. Takes away their testimony because they don't love him anymore. You think it's accompanied by a thunderclap? Maybe uh, a big rip in the sky, you know, or maybe he pastes a big uh, sign, you know, out in front, out of business. Well, too often, uh, there's nothing really visible in an earthly sense. That, uh, that church often will go right on preaching messages, people will continue attending And uh, to them, quite often, perhaps it might look just like business as usual. Except for one main thing. They're barren. Their testimony is is ineffective because God the Holy Spirit is no longer accompanying their ministry. He has removed the lampstand. It's an act of judgment upon a church at large. But uh, it's not just uh, to churches the Lord Jesus uh, posts this warning. Certainly... Uh, he did so with the nation of Israel, didn't he? He judged them. And the interesting thing was that uh, they didn't really see it. Now, later in 70 AD, of course, there was a physical act of judgment by the Romans, which, which everybody saw. But uh, you remember the parable in, in uh, Matthew where Jesus looked them in the eye and said, Truly I say to you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation producing the fruits thereof. And there was a point in time, right around that time of the triumphal entry and the, and the crucifixion, where he really did that. It was quite visible from his point of view, but uh, you'd never know it. Uh, the Jewish uh, people were just as zealous, probably more so, in the persecution of the Christians, as we're going to see in this case, as they were before. Well, this, this uh, removing of the lampstand of, of witness, of testimony for him, uh, can be applied to us as well as individuals. Certainly, the loveless Christian has no impact on people around him because God will not accompany the testimony of a believer who has lost their love for Christ 
with fruitfulness. And that's the application I want to make. Uh, really, I mentioned it last week, but I want to stress it again this week. Uh, be careful about loveless orthodoxy. Be careful about right doctrine and wrong love. Because just as the churches will continue and just as the nation of Israel continue going through the motions, so it is possible, and I believe I've seen it, and you probably have too, uh, to have Christians where the Lord Jesus has made them barren because of their lack of love for him. And yet they will continue going through the Christian motions. And there's nothing probably more frustrating for a believer than to be going through the Christian motions and yet being fruitless for God. Jesus said in John, you know, I have appointed you that you should go, bear, go forth and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. It's amazing there too, in that same section he said, apart from me you can do nothing. And it's amazing to me how much Christians can do <laughs> of, the, of themselves, of without him. Of course, what he meant there was, of course, you can do nothing of spiritual importance. Nothing for uh, eternal importance without me. Like dear old Samson, you know, when he be, betrayed the uh, secret of his hair. And he had his hair shorn off, and Delilah said, uh, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And that's a classic phrase he said to himself. I will go out as at other times. But he wist not, as it says in the good old King James, he wist not that the Holy Spirit had departed from him. And he was powerless for God. And the solution, of course, for the church and for the believer who has lost their love for Christ is is uh, to repent. Repent. If he is no longer my first love, it's real simple. There's something else that's first in my love that's not him. And whatever that is, has got to go. And he's, he needs to go back to where he belongs. Psalm 51, good place to uh, turn if, if you find yourself in that state. Because after the confession and uh, the repentance and the restoration, David Ng has this great insight. He says, Then... After all of this, after the forgiveness and the cleansing and the restoration, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Then you can use me in the lives of other people. Well, this week we're going to have a, a change in venue, a little shifting of the gears, because the church at Smyrna was probably the healthiest church in all the seven. You wouldn't know that to uh, look at it uh, from a worldly point of view. Let's read about them here, beginning in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says, the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which are about to you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Uh, probably one of the things that might have jumped out at you, if you remember my eight-point summary of the letters last week, there is no fault-finding here. There's no criticism of the church. There's no rebuke. This is a healthy church. And uh, if you're to give a, a, a title to the church, if you would call last week the loveless church, you might call this the persecuted church or the suffering church. Here, uh, the Lord is using persecution to really keep his church healthy. And I want to say a word before we get into this. Uh, persecution falls under the general, general category of trials in our lives. We have a number of young believers in our midst. We're going to talk a little bit about this subject as we go through it. Later on, we're going to make the distinction between temptations and trials. There are differences between the two, particularly because we see the devil involved in this one. But uh, why? Why trials? In this case, why persecution, which is a form of a trial? Well... The Bible teaches us several things. You know, God is, says in Ephesians, He has manifold, His wisdom is manifold, and so are His purposes. When He does something, 
It's not like us where we do something because we want to, we want to accomplish one thing. When God does something, he accomplishes hundreds of things. Isn't that neat? You know? His ways are just so far beyond our ways. We're not that complex. We're pretty simple-minded. But uh, when it comes to uh, trials, persecution in this particular instance, his uh, purposes are many. Uh, he's working in the life of the individual, first of all, uh, clearly to accomplish uh, the working out of patience. You familiar with that? James 1, Cannot all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. patience. Wouldn't it be nice if patience just kind of came upon you automatically? <laughs> you know, it just, I don't know, sort of floated down from heaven like manna and and it dropped upon you. I think that would be nice. But it doesn't happen that way. Of all the attributes where God is working Christ's likeness into his children, when it comes to patience, he, throughout the word, he, he indicates that the, the best way that he has of working patience into our lives is to bring trials. Is that bad news? I hope not. It's God at work. And he's conforming us to the image of his son. And uh, in this particular case, he has to use a means that's not always pleasant, at least from, from our point of view. Even though it's, it's in the long run, it's temporary, as uh, Paul says so eloquently in 2 Corinthians, that this momentary light affliction is not to be compared with the eternal weight of glory that is being worked by it. I know several right now who are in the midst of various kinds of trials, and uh, I'm praising God as I'm seeing uh, how God is, is really uh, working patience into their lives. So this is a real thing. It's happening, 1999, right now. Uh, one of the uh, best places to read about this subject is in the book of James, also the book of First Peter. Much of those books are devoted to the subject of trials. It's interesting how the attributes of God are connected with trials. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that uh, through trial he learned that his grace is sufficient for me. His grace. He talked about his patience, how he tried to work that in us. Uh, later he says that uh, through trials his strength is made per perfect through our weakness. So his grace, his, his patience, his strength all come into play. We're going to see later that there are many others that are prominent in trials. Um, it's, it's really the, the opposite of uh, when we're living our lives and everything just seems to be coming up a bed of roses. You know, everything's just a smooth, smooth freeway. It's when the bumps come, you know, that the Lord really works that quality of patience. Well, besides individual, his purposes are corporate. He, he'll, he will use uh, trials in a corporate way. He is right here in the church of Smyrna, for example. It's the whole church that's being persecuted. And his purposes there are purifying, as, as you see here in this church. It's a healthy church. You see that uh, as you're going through the book of Acts, after the member of the martyrdom of Stephen, right there in Acts chapter 8. So the great persecution arose against the church. What happened? They were scattered. And uh, what did they do when they were scattered? They went everywhere preaching the word. There's another purpose. He, he sometimes uses it to spread the gospel. It's interesting if you look in that uh, chapter 8, of Acts, where it says they went everywhere preaching the word, the places they went. If you look back in chapter 1, the Lord Jesus said, you're going to be witnesses of me in starting in Jerusalem, you know, that's where things started, and then in Judea, and then Samaria, and then finally the uttermost parts of the earth. And apparently, around the time of the persecution of Stephen, pretty much the activity was staying around Jerusalem, and, and uh, things weren't really spreading out too much, the way he had said it should. And if you look there in Acts chapter 8, guess where they went? Judea, step number 2, and Samaria, step number 3. It was his way of, of prodding the believers out. It uh, purifies in another way, Matthew 13. The Lord Jesus says uh, about the parable of the sower, remember that some of the seed fell on uh, stony ground. Remember that? Shallow, shallow earth. So that the, the, uh, the plant sprung up right away in the shallow earth but then it died out from the sun. Remember that? And Jesus explained that for us. He said plainly that the seed that fell on the rocky ground sprung up and then died out because of the sun is a picture of someone who professes to know Jesus, but it's not real. 
And the thing that manifests their false profession is persecution. He uses that word. He uses persecution to sort out the true from the false in the church. You know, right now in, the, in this country, it's popular to be a Christian. It has been for a long time. But there are places in the world where it's not popular to be a Christian. In fact, it's often a death sentence. You don't find many false professors in those places. You know? I don't think you find any. I don't think you find uh, anybody running around saying they're a Christian who isn't at the risk of their life. There's, there's no point in it, you see. And certainly that's one of the reasons that the church of Smyrna was so healthy. That uh, if they said they were believers, you could probably rely upon the fact that they were because as we see here, they were facing death in many cases. So the purposes of God in, in uh, persecution and trials in general are, are manifold. Let's look now at uh, how the Lord Jesus revealed himself to the church. He begins, as, as we said last week, with his, his uh, for, standard format throughout the letters into the angel of the church, or the messenger, really, I prefer. It's, it's the, it, the word can be translated either way. The messenger of the church in Smyrna write, these things says, now here's his self-description, the first and the last who was dead and came to life. And what a beautiful description to tie in. As you're going to see later, he does that with a church under persecution, particularly many who are facing death. Really, he's, he's reminding them that he is the one who is the victor over death, and because of him, they have the victory too. He is the one who, using bad grammar, was dead. You ever met anybody who said that? I was dead? No. Except Jesus. I was dead. He can say that. And I live forevermore. As I said, these descriptions are lifted out of the book of Revelation often. And you, we saw this one previously back in uh, chapter 1, in uh, verse 17 and verse 18. So right away, he's, he's uh, reminding these dear believers, remember this letter from, Paul, uh, from uh, John was written down by him as the Lord commanded. Somehow, it was taken from the Isle of Patmos where he was being exiled and it found its way ashore and eventually was read in the individual churches as they existed at that time. And how encouraging it must have been to the believers at Smyrna huh? during this time to have words from the Lord Jesus himself, naming them, recognizing their situation and encouraging them, strengthening them. And uh, just... It's only to us, as we mark it out, uh, four short verses, but boy, it must have been precious to them to hear these words from the Lord himself. And to begin this way, reminding them that he is the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life, the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Then uh, the next uh, piece of the letter that's common to all is, I know your works. And here he says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. As I said earlier, from the world's point of view, really there's probably nothing worse than the state of the church. They, they were not only poor, but they were going through suffering. You know, if you had asked uh, someone from the world, if somebody was in that state, you know, they must be miserable. That's the worst place they could be. And I love this little thing in parentheses here that the Lord Jesus says, but you are rich. Isn't that good? Isn't that great? Jesus cuts through what man sees and he says the true situation. He says the reality. You're rich. You think that encouraged them when they heard that? You know, when it was read maybe on the Lord's Day? You know, maybe, maybe the messenger, whoever, uh, stood up and read from the scroll this particular section. And uh, he says, I know your works. That, that would encourage me to hear that. I know your works. Jesus knows it. He knows the tribulation we're going through. He knows our poverty. He's familiar with it. He's been there. He knows what we're going through right now. You think Jesus experienced tribulation? You think Jesus suffered? You think Jesus was poor? Yes, and they know that. So he knows not only what they're going through, but he can relate to it because he's been there. And then he says, through it all, you're rich. Wow. It's interesting to me that this is almost a direct opposite of the last church, Laodicea. Here, he says, you are 
uh, you're going, going, going through tribulation, you're suffering, and you're poor, but you're rich. And at the church of Laodicea, the, the picture of the church in the end times, he says, you think, or you, you say that you are rich and have need of nothing, but you are poor and miserable and blind and naked. The church that thought they were rich were poor. And the church, from all outward appearances, that was poor, Jesus says, is rich. Well, they're about to suffer even more greatly. And again, I think that would be an encouragement as the Lord Jesus tells them uh, what they're about to experience in verse 10. We'll look at that in a minute. Well, at this point, you know, let's, let's be honest. Let's put ourselves in the, in the place of the church of Smyrna. Here they are. We don't know uh, who established the church, how long they, many of them had been believers. We just know where they were located as they were going through persecution. But certainly they were people of uh, like flesh, like you and me. And uh, the tendency in a situation like that is to ask, has God forgotten me? You know, isn't that true? If we're going through suffering, Lord, have you forgotten me? Or uh, the classic situation illustrated by Joe's comforters, have I sinned? You know, Maybe, maybe the, these thoughts were going through the minds of some of the believers. There's certainly fear. He addresses that later. He, he says, fear not, do not fear. Just imagine the encouragement uh, from the Lord Jesus to these dear believers where he says, but you are rich. Later he says, the wonderful phrase he uses all over the Gospels, do not fear, fear not. You know, be of good cheer. And then, on top of all that, these promises that he addresses to them. Well, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. Secondly, in verse 9, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, these are not people pretending to be Jews when he says they are Jews and they are not. He's talking like he was in, uh, for example, John chapter 8, where he looked the Jews in the eye when they said, Our father is Abraham. And he said almost the same thing. He said, Your father's not Abraham, and it's not God. Your father is Satan, because you're doing the works of your father. Uh, particularly in the early church, we know. Uh, you're learning it from the book of Acts. The primary persecutor of the church were the, were the Jews. Uh, they picked up where they left off with the Lord Jesus. He was crucified by them. And as it says in 1 Corinthians, that the, that the preaching of the cross then was a stumbling block to the Jews. They hated that message. The Christians were going around, in many cases converted Jews, sometimes uh, converted Gentiles, saying, this one that you guys crucified as a criminal is your Messiah. They hated that message with a passion. And so, as in this particular case in the church of Smyrna, their primary persecutor, persecutors were Jews. Uh, I believe uh, you just finished looking at Stephen. And remember the rage uh, with which the Jews ran at him when he rebuked them for their unfaithfulness to God. Uh, Paul, boy, what a zealous man, huh? Against the church. I like that phrase, Paul, breathing out threats. You know, you get this picture of a dragon you know, with, with fire coming out of his nostrils, breathing out threats against the Lord's people. He was a Jew persecuting the church with zeal. And then in the irony of God, he saves Paul with a marvelous salvation. <laughs> he ends up on the receiving end and glorifies God in him. Isn't that wonderful? He gives praise to God or the sufferings that he can endure for Christ. Wow. What a wonderful God we have. He, he takes the most unlikely people like me and saves them and uses them for his purposes. And, not, and beyond that, in the case of Paul, he just glorified God so much in the midst of his sufferings. Right away, remember, as soon as he came out into the open as a Christian, he had to be let down in a basket over the wall of the city, remember to escape being killed. Uh, something really, you, you realize how little uh, is covered in the book of Acts in the lives of the individual believers. For example, Paul, because we find out later in, in 2 Corinthians, remember when we went through that, where he listed his sufferings toward the end of the book. And in one item in the list, he said, uh, 
Five times I have received from the Jews 40 stripes minus one. None of those are recorded in the book of Acts. We don't know about any of those. We know about his beating at Philippi, but that was with the hand of, hands of Gentiles. So five times that we don't even know about historically, other than Second Corinthians. Imagine, being uh, that, that was no, no small thing to be treated that way once. Five times whipped. And it's 39 stripes. It was 39 because Deuteronomy, uh, God commanded uh, 40 strokes. And to be on the safe side, they didn't want to sin and accidentally do 41. And so they made it 39 in case there was an extra one, and then it would be 40. Let me tell you, there was no act of mercy. With that cat and nine tails, 39 stripes. Left, left your back wide open, sometimes with the backbone showing. And he'd gone through that five times for the Lord's sake at the hand of the Jews. Uh, to me, probably the scariest uh, persecution at the hands of the Jews in the life of Paul was toward the end, you remember... Um, he went to Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit had, had uh, shown to him that, that he was going to be taken prisoner there. And uh, they came in in a rage because he had taken, supposedly taken Gentiles into the temple. And uh, the Romans come in basically to save him. You know, like a police escort. And they're taking him up to the barracks there and he turns to the crowd uh, as they want his blood. And he begins speaking in Hebrew. And they immediately go fall silent. And he begins to basically share his testimony. It's really wonderful. There's his personal testimony, how God saved him. And they listen attentively because if you read how he states it, there's nothing really offensive to a Jew until he gets to this point where he says, and then God said, I want you to take this message to the... That's right, Gentiles. And it says, upon hearing that word, Gentiles. They went into a rage. So they tore off their clothes, threw dust in the air, uh, and, they, and they wanted his blood. Well, that wasn't bad enough. Uh, it turns out that there were more than 40 Jews, listen to this, who took an oath that they would neither eat food or drink water until they had killed Paul. Can you imagine that? Imagine somebody after you, more than 40 guys are hot after you, and they have made a vow and these are religious people. They're serious about it. That they're not going to eat or drink anything until they have killed you. I tell you, they're going to be pretty serious about that, huh? God spared him from that. I would be interested in, to know what happened to those guys. Because they didn't get him. And God doesn't say what they did. But uh, God had greater things. So you can go ahead and take all the oaths that you, you're going to do something you want to. But if God is against it. You can forget it. So here, in this particular region, in Smyrna, the persecution against uh, the church, the local church, is being conducted primarily by the Jews. And so Jesus has these wonderful words. This is a wonderful phrase, do not fear. Just right there, do not fear. He knows what they're going through. He knows the tendency to be afraid. Uh, he knows our our frame that we are but dust. And he says, do not fear. He says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer, about to suffer. And he enumerates some of them. He describes the immediate future for them. He says it's going to be 10 days. It's interesting. I said, as we go through the book of Revelation, we'll try to explain symbols. When, when, first of all, when they are symbols. And secondly, when we're pretty confident in what they mean. And it's amazing how people get off in this 10 days here. As you know, uh, the book of Revelation is full of time spans, days, months, and years. And uh, a lot of them get, it, get, it, get deep significance out of this 10 days. I, it's simply, he's telling the church at Smyrna that their tribulation is going to last 10 days. It's a literal 10 days, period. Enough said. And it's wonderful, isn't it, that they now know what they're in for. It's going to last 10 days. They have an end to look forward to. Wouldn't that be nice if the Lord said every time we're in a trial, you know? <laughs> Go mark on your calendar. It's going to be over right here. <laughs> Well, he did that in this case. I think that was really gracious. He, uh, he said they were going to be suffering. He said some are going to be thrown into prison. And uh, certainly, as, as it goes on when you read it, some of them are, are going to die, those who are faithful unto death. And in all of that, he said, do not fear any of these things. 
Well, uh, as, I, as I promised, we're going to take on the subject of testing temptation because it really comes up right here when it says, Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Okay. First of all, be careful. The devil, because Jesus said it, the devil wasn't, personally, he was involved in this particular uh, persecution because Jesus said so. The devil is, is involved in this. But he's not involved in every uh, trial that comes into a believer's life, like, just like he's not involved in every temptation that comes into our lives, in spite of people constantly saying, the devil made me do it. He is a finite being. Remember that. He is not God. He is in one place at one time. And to be honest, he, he's not going to waste his time on uh, particularly uh, lowly Christians. He's going to be out where the action is, you know, where the forefront of the church is, is uh, cutting swaths into his territory. That's where he's personally going to be and at work. And here he was personally at the church of Smyrna. So by and large, when, if we go through trials personally, you and I, or if we're facing temptation, you and I, be careful. Don't ascribe everyone to the devil. I don't know if I've ever had any personally from him, and you don't either. Certainly not all of them. But he is the source of some. So let me just give a, a quick review. Well, their nature. Well, trials in their nature usually include suffering, and they often last for a period of time. Temptations usually involve desires simply of our sinful nature and are often shorter in duration. Well, that doesn't help much so far, I guess, you're saying, right? Well, it'll get clear as we go on here. The, the thing is, sometimes it's not clear in our lives. We have to be careful. Uh, we talked about the nature. Well, the origin. The origin of trials, they sometimes originate with Satan. Here, certainly this, in this case, we know that. God told us. Here's a trial for this church, for these believers. It's a trial. There's suffering. It's affliction. It's persecution. It's tribulation. Those are words used here. And he says the devil is in it. The devil is going to have some of you cast into prison. We know of another good example from the Scripture, which is a trial that originated with the devil. Job, yes. Job, there's a man who went through great trial. It lasted a period of time. He suffered. And it began with Satan. Uh, now, trials are different from temptations in that sometimes they originate with God. The, the devil is not involved in it. A good example of that is uh, Abraham offering up Isaac. That was a test. We know that because he says that in the book of Hebrews. When Abraham, when he was tested, and he was tested by the Lord. That wasn't Satan's idea, was it? That was God's idea. That was a trial that came straight from God. Now, no matter who originated it, let's be clear about this, every time it passes through the hands of God. That's important. Nothing uh, comes directly from Satan to us. Isn't that, isn't that great? Uh, the good example, of course, of that is Job. You know, where Job each time had to go ask permission. And God had to give the okay, and each time he limited it. You know, he said, you, you can do this, but not that. He does that with you and me. Every single time, no matter what the, what the source of the trial is in our lives, he is passed through his hands first. And he looks at you and he says, okay, there is, uh, you know, I'll have to be careful what my name is. There's Nicodemus, you know, I'll use a name that nobody's here. Or there's, uh, I can't think of a woman's name offhand, but, you know, a woman, a, a good godly Christian woman or a a Christian man, and he considers us one by one. He knows our structure, you know, our maturity in Christ. And he, he tailors the trial, really, to fit us. Made to order trials. He's a gracious God. He doesn't allow anything to come into our lives that's too great to bear. And, when he, and then, beyond that, when he allows the trial, he gives all the grace and strength we need and more. Okay, so the origin... Sometimes, for, for trials, it's sometimes uh, Satan, sometimes God himself, always goes to the hands of God. In the case of temptations, well, the source is sometimes Satan, and it's never God. Okay? Let's be clear about that. We are never tempted. That is a lure to evil by God. And you can't be any plainer than James. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. 
For God himself is not tempted of evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. That's pretty clear, isn't it? God does not try to get us to sin. That's the devil's business. But I notice I said sometimes, because I'll tell you, the, the devil gets blamed for a lot more than he does. Uh, we've got plenty of raw material here to, <laughs> to uh, work on without the devil's assistance. And of course, most of you know the three great sources of temptation, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it's that middle one that's keyed on in the book of James. He doesn't mention the world or the devil. He says, but each one, when he is tempted, is led away by his own lusts, his own desires. That's it. Let's be honest about it. Right here. This sinful heart. Okay? And when the devil's involved, it's still my heart. It's because he has something in me to use, which he doesn't in the case of the Lord Jesus. Remember? He has nothing in me. But he does. He's got plenty of stuff to work with with me and with you. So, in the temptation, sometimes the devil is uh, the, origin, the originator, but uh, sometimes just me, probably usually just me, okay? Sometimes the world, but in all cases using my uh, sinful desires. <clears throat> well, the appropriate response finally. In a trial, God really desires endurance. Over and over again you see that. Uh, to stay under the trial, as tough as it may be, because he has permitted it for our good, and we won't learn the lesson unless we stay in class until the bell rings. That's, that's the story about trials right there. And so, in the, and you notice in the case of the persecuted church here, Smyrna, he says, he who uh, is faithful unto death, you know, even when death might come, he said, hang in there. Whereas in the case of temptation, well, clearly, uh, it's the opposite. The response is to get out of there, to flee. Great example, Joseph and his temptation with Potiphar's wife. He ran physically. Legs start moving. Left his, his cloak there. Second Timothy, flee youthful lusts. Moses in the book of Hebrews, I love it. Uh, Moses, imagine all the riches of Egypt. Greatest empire in the world at that time. That's pretty rich, huh? All the riches of Egypt were uh, going to be his as the supposed son of uh, Pharaoh's daughter. And it says he refused. Which in modern lingo is Moses just said no. Just say no. The uh, final characteristic, I'll compare the two. In the case of failure, well... It's interesting, if when we fail a trial, and this is really, particularly when the devil is, is behind it, he, he is, uh, like in the case of Job, he is out to see us doubt God. Boy, he'd love nothing better than that. Job's wife expressed it beautifully. It's as if the, the, the devil himself were talking. Remember what she told him to do? Curse God and die. You know? That was what he wanted to have. That's, that, and the failure would have been for Job to do just that, to doubt God. And it's interesting, I told you we were going to talk about the attributes of God in regard to trials, and three more of them come up. There are many of them. We mentioned four earlier. There are three here, too. In the, in, when we're in the midst of a trial, whether it's persecution or, or just some for, form, of, a form of suffering or, or a mental anguish or whatever it is, but if it's a genuine trial that God has permitted to develop patience in our lives and to strengthen our faith, the three attributes of God that seem to come into question over and over again are, number one, we question his wisdom. You know? Here I am in the midst of this thing. Does God really know what he's doing? That's really, isn't it? Huh? Aren't we tempted to ask that question? We question his wisdom. Uh, secondly, we question his love. Isn't that terrible? I mean, I'm confessing this, you know? I've done this. Can he really, I, look at what I'm going through. Does he really love me? Is his love all that great to permit me to go through this? We question his love, and we question his power. If God is so great, can he really uh, get me out of this? You know, or is this just too great for him to do anything about? Here I am going through this suffering, and he can't bail me out. You know, the, the assumption there is, of course, that that's what he's supposed to do. Not realizing that he's the one that permitted it in the first place, desiring us to stay under it. So, no matter what the trial, uh, the, the failure would be to question God, and particularly in his love and his wisdom and his power. 
Well, in the case of a temptation, a failure is real simple. We just sin. Of course, now, you could say earlier those were sins too, but those tend to be the particular uh, kinds of sins in the failure of a trial. Well, in summary, though, in the case of a trial or a temptation, be encouraged. Both are limited by God. Remember that. There is nothing that's going to come into your life that is too great for you to bear. That's a promise. 1 Corinthians 10. And in the case of a temptation, there's another promise, and this is wonderful. And he says, they will also make a way to escape. A way of escape. He's not talking about a trial there. He doesn't want us to escape. He wants us to endure. But in the case of temptation, God makes a way of escape. Isn't that neat? That's a promise. He will make a way out. So I can never say I was trapped. You know? When I'm tempted and then I sin. I can't say, no, I didn't have a choice. There wasn't a way out. No, God promises that there will be. Well, in this case, here we have a trial. And uh, at least in part, the originator is, is the devil because the Lord Jesus tells us that himself. Well, one of the promises here that the Lord Jesus makes, besides all the encouragement that he's already said in just these few words, is, is at the end he says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, we, we talked about the last uh, letter where he talked about um, giving to eat from the tree of life. And we know a little bit about that from the scripture, but to be honest, never having eaten from it or seen it, we can't say a lot about it. The crown of life is interesting. It's mentioned elsewhere in the same kind of a context. So it must be a real crown, a real reward. It's in James chapter 1. And it's interesting that there are three things that are said there that are identical to what he says here in Revelation. Number one, it's title. He calls it a crown of life. Secondly, uh, it's given for enduring trials, just as here. And finally, the giver is the Lord himself. It says that the Lord himself shall give to those love him. So let's not uh, feel obliged to over-allegorize and symbolize this. I believe it's a real crown, a, a crown of life. It's going to be like no crown you've ever seen, obviously. And so later when we see the four and twenty elders throwing their crowns at the feet of the Lord Jesus, not, that's not figurative. I believe those are really crowns that they are casting at his feet. He, it's interesting to me. You know, the Lord, he really... That's a Christian. He notices, he, more than that, he is fully aware of when we're undergoing trials. It's not like he's in some back room, you know. He's watching. I believe he's intently interested in particular when we're in trials. It's not like he's got a thousand other things going and he can't notice. Remember, he's the infinite God. And he's particularly interested in our response in trials. This special reward, for example, indicates that. I was talking with a brother last week uh, about the martyrdom of Stephen. And he uh, said, the, the question came up, why was Jesus standing there since he supposedly sat down at the right hand? I believe that was a vision given to Stephen to encourage his heart. I'll tell you, if I was Stephen standing there and feeling those stones break my bones and con cause contusions and bruises, and to see my Savior in heaven standing up, looking at me, man, he's taking special notice. That's what I believe he, he was doing that for, to encourage the heart of Stephen. It would have been one thing to see Jesus sitting down while I'm getting stoned. And, and if he'd done that, then that's, that's great. But it, it really has significance to me when I read that, that Jesus is standing up while Stephen is getting stoned, taking notice of the death of one of his loved ones and encouraging him just as he encouraged uh, the church at Smyrna. It says in Psalm 16, Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious in the eyes of the Lord. This, this uh, idea of suffering and preciousness. Uh, I love to study the scripture and look for uh, patterns or look for repetitions. And I don't mean just of one word. I, I, I like it when they're more subtle, when they're ideas. If you ever study the book of 1 Peter sometime, look for precious or valuable or incorruptible things. The same things that are worth a lot. It's amazing how that subject comes up over and over in the book of 1 Peter. For example, you're all familiar with a verse that we're not uh, redeemed by corruptible things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. There's one of the precious things, the blood of Jesus. Uh, to, uh, to us who believe, He is precious. He is precious. So there's two things. The blood of Christ is precious. He is precious. 
Uh, it talks about that when we were born again, we're, we're uh, regenerated by incorruptible seed, the Word of God. There's another infinitely worthy uh, item, the Word of God. It talks about our inheritance is laid up, it says it's incorruptible, it fadeth not away. Our inheritance is talked about as a precious thing. Well, the, the fifth thing there is our faith when tested. Interesting. Think of that list. The Lord Jesus himself, the blood of Christ, the word of God, our inheritance, and the testing of our faith are precious according to God. In fact, in the case of the testing of our faith, he says when it's tried uh, being um, more pure than gold, he compares it to gold and he says it's better than gold. The testing of our faith. Trials are important to God. And how we respond uh, is the most important thing to Him. We shouldn't be surprised, you know, uh, that He really, and I mean this reverently, sits up and takes notice when He allows us to go through a trial and He, and he, and he, and he studies how, how we respond. Because it's one thing for us in, in the sunshine and when everything is going our way, to be happy and joyous and talk about Jesus and tell people how wonderful the Lord is. And I, and I pray we're doing that. But I'll tell you what, it's quite another thing, and this is where the world really, I mean, and the world will see that and, and they'll take notice of that, but the world really is blown away, to use a contemporary phrase, when they see a believer where everything is going against them, they're going through the most difficult time in their life, and at that point, they're saying, you know what, God loves me, God is wise. God is all-powerful. God is a wonderful God. He is worthy of trust. In spite of what you see in my life and the sufferings I'm going through, the hand of God is in this. He is a wonderful God. He is accomplishing things in my life. That blows the world away. When we say it when it's sunny, okay, that's good, and we should do that. But I'll tell you, when the storm clouds come over and we continue to do it, man, that finds blessing with God. He loves that. That honors him. That says, I have a great God. That tells others, you, you know what, this God is to be trusted. So we shouldn't be surprised that God places such an emphasis in the Scripture on trials. And so here in this case, he is taking special notice of this little assembly here in Asia Minor, Smyrna. May we uh, say with, with Job, you know, I, I think Job, couldn't, he said it better than anybody. He said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Those, those words still echo today. People read those. They see this man and the terrible, terrible uh, sufferings he went through. And to hear him say those words, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. That honors God. Yeah, that honors God. And then the last uh, section, of course, again, follows the standard format. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he's saying this isn't just addressed to the, to the church at Smyrna. It's meant for all believers and certainly of all time. And so there's application to our lives. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. This is the first mentioning of that subject in the book of Revelation, the second death. We'll see a lot more of it here in, in uh, chapter 20 when we get there. And uh, the promise to the overcoming believer, he shall not be hurt by the second death. You know, the Bible says that everybody's going to die once. That's, that's a law and it's never been violated. you know anybody who hasn't died or isn't going to die? God's right, isn't he? The point of the man wants to die. That's right. And after this, the judgment. But you know what? Everybody dies once. But it's only Christians who only die once. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you die twice. And that's what he says here. The second death. Everybody dies once. I'm glad I'm going to die once because I, this body's getting old. I haven't played racquetball for a year because of my neck surgery. And I went out the other day and, and I thought I'd do something a little milder. I shot a round of golf. I thought I'd climbed Half Dome about five times when I got back. Whew. I'm about ready to dispose of this thing, I'll tell you. I'm going to die once. This isn't me, this body, what you see. This is a container for Rick Bellis. This isn't Rick Bellis. This is, a, this is clay here. Okay? And if Jesus tarries when I die, it's going to go away. That doesn't bother me. It's not me. What, what, what inhabits this body is Rick Bellis. 
And Rick Bell is going to leave this body. That's called dying. That's what dying is. Very natural thing. And thank God, because when I do that, God, the one that gave me this body, is going to give me a better model. <laughs> it's one that's fit for heaven. This one isn't. Man, when I'm in heaven, I don't want to be tired and get hungry and thirsty, you know, and sick. He's going to give me a body that doesn't do those kind of things. Isn't that great? But that's only for believers in Jesus Christ. You see? And when a believer dies that one time, that's the end of the suffering, so to speak. It's the beginning of paradise, to use the word from last week. But for the person who doesn't know Jesus Christ, and I'm sure there are some here this morning, it's the beginning of the second death, and that doesn't end. And he talks about that later in chapter 20. If you don't know Jesus this morning, boy, you need to come to him. He alone can save you from that second death. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wisdom. We think of your ways and how you use trials in our lives. And uh, we pray we would take heart from this encouragement to the church at Smyrna. Lord, you said, don't be afraid. Help us, Lord, to, to fear not when you allow trials to come into our lives, but rather to, to look to you, to grow in our, uh, in our faith, to glorify you with words like, though he slay me, yet shall I trust him. Lord, you are so trustworthy. Far be it from us, Lord, to doubt your goodness, to doubt your love, to doubt your power, to doubt your wisdom. Lord, we pray that we might be found faithful when trials do come into our lives, that we might learn from them, that we might grow in our patience. I confess I need it, Lord. I know we all do. Use them, we pray. And we can't read this last section here about the second death without having a burden for those who don't know the Lord Jesus. We just ask that there's anyone here who is still facing the second death, they might come to Christ and be saved from it through him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.